All right, we are in the Gospel of Mark, and we are going to finish up chapter 3 today. So I hope you'll follow along in your Bible or on your YouVersion app or up on the screen if you don't have one with you. And follow along on the screen as I read this morning from God's Word. Verse 20 says, And then he went home, talking about Jesus, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he, talking about Jesus, is out of his mind. Anybody ever read that before in the Bible? Did you notice that? (laughs) And uh, in verse 22 it says, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, which is another name for the the, the devil. Or it says, And by the prince of demons he casts out demons. Verse 23 says, And he called them to him and said in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom kingdom cannot stand. And And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is, is, is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his, his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never ha- has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Thank you, Jimmy. That's very nice of you. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered and said, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And this is God's word. Thanks be to God for his all-inspired word of God. We believe at Revolution Church that the word of God is inerrant. We believe in what's called verbal plenary inspiration, which means every word of God is divinely inspired and preserved by him. And you know what? This is what we need this morning. Our our souls, we we get our tanks on empty throughout the week. And we we can either fill our minds and our hearts with junk or we can fill it with the word of God. And, and this is how we choose to start off the first day of the week, first thing in the morning, is to fill ourselves up with the word of God. There, there's a guy you may have heard of named Jordan Peterson, very popular on YouTube right now. He's a Canadian professor of psychology and clinical psychologist. And he's a YouTube, person, YouTube personality and author. He's considered to be a member of the intellectual dark web. Um, Peterson obtained his bachelor's degree in political science and psychology from the University of Alberta and a PhD in clinical psychology from McGill University. And after teaching at Harvard University, this is no small mind here, he returned to Canada in 1998 to permanently join the faculty uh, of psychology at the University of Toronto. When asked if he believes in God, Peterson responded, I think the proper response to that is no, but I'm afraid he might exist. Like a lot of great 
psychological minds around the world today, many of them are atheists. And that's where Peterson has been. But he's coming to a transition in his life right now where there's so much going on around him that from Christians having good input into his life, which is what we need to do, amen, that he is coming around to where he's possibly believing. And I don't like to show a lot of videos, but I want you to see this clip about a guy who's been a self-proclaimed atheist for years, but from influence of other believers and from history and Jesus Christ himself. Watch, about, watch this video with me. And turn that up. And Jung, to a lesser degree, I would say, but Campbell did that. But the difference, and C.S. Lewis pointed this out as well, the difference between those mythological gods and Christ was that there's a there's a representation of, there's a historical representation of his, of, of his existence as well. Now you can debate whether or not that's genuine. You can debate about whether or not he actually lived and whether there's credible objective evidence for that, but it doesn't matter in some sense because this, well, it does, but there's a sense in which it doesn't matter because there's still a historical story. And so what you have in the figure of Christ is an actual person who actually lived plus a myth and in some sense, Christ is the union of those two things. The problem is, is I probably believe that, but I don't okay. know. I don't, I'm amazed at my own belief and I don't understand it. Like, because I've seen. Sometimes the objective world and the narrative world touch you know, that's Jungian synchronicity. And I've seen that many times in my own life. And so in some sense, I believe it's undeniable. You know, we have a narrative sense of the world. For me, that's been the world of morality. That's the world that tells us how to act. It's real, like we treat it like it's real. It's not the objective world, but the narrative and the objective world touch. And the ultimate example of that in principle is supposed to be Christ. But I don't know what to, and that seems to me oddly plausible. Yeah. Well, but I still don't know what to make of it. It's too, partly because it's too terrifying a reality to fully believe. I don't even know what would happen to you if you fully believed it. If you believed in the story of Christ or if you believed that history and, and let's say the narrative make meet, let's Both, say. I yeah. think. I think you... Because when you believe that, you buy both those stories. You believe that yeah. the narrative and the objective can actually touch. Do you know that you have a lot of people around you struggling with this same thing? And they may not see it or show it on YouTube like this guy just did. But you have a lot of people who are wanting to believe. There's just too much screaming to them that God exists. That the very fact that you understand that there's a difference between right and wrong tells you that there is a lawgiver. You know when you've broken his law because there's a lawgiver who says, who has placed inside your heart the difference between right and wrong. Paul said it to the Roman church. He said the Gentiles have the law written upon their heart so they're without excuse. So if anybody stands before God and says, well, I never heard about the Bible. I never heard about Jesus. 
God says, hey, I had my law written on your heart. Every civilization around the globe knows that murder is wrong, that adultery is wrong, that stealing is wrong, that lying is wrong. Why do we all know that? Why do we have the same moral code around the world when people have never heard of Moses, the giver of the Ten Commandments? It's because it's written upon your heart. And your heart tells you there is a God. And that God has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. So I'm challenging you to those watching online, which thank the Lord, we seem to have more and more people who are checking out Christianity, watching us online, and that's great. And if you're checking out Jesus Christ online and you want to know what Christianity is all about, I challenge you to read the Gospel of Mark with us. I challenge you that if you're a skeptic and you're not sure whether this Jesus thing is real, read it for yourself. And you can even pray, Lord Jesus, if you're out there, Make yourself known to me through your word. And I promise you, that's a prayer that he will answer. So search the scriptures with us as we go through the Gospel of Mark. I haven't mentioned chiastic structure around here in a while. We had a ton of them in Deuteronomy, but there's one actually here in this passage right here. And for those of you who don't know what a chiastic structure is, it's a pattern that a lot of the writers of the Bible use to, to outline what it is they're going to talk about. And it's a different way of thinking than we're used to. In the Western world, we think linearly. We, we tell a story. We start at the beginning. We go, then, then this, then this, then this, and then here's how the story ended. But in Hebrew culture, they start with something, and they also end with it. And then they work their way, and it's kind of like a sandwich. Bread, bread, lettuce, lettuce, or man skip the best part. Mayonnaise, mayonnaise, okay, for those of you who like that. Lettuce, lettuce, you know, and then what's in the middle? The meat. The meat of the sandwich is the middle. So, here we see that Mark starts off with talking about Jesus' family and how does he end talking about Jesus' family. And then he proceeds to how they said he's possessed by Beelzebul and then in verse 30 how he has an unclean spirit. And you see how those two thoughts are parallel, right? And then he says um, about how can Satan cast out Satan and then he talks about the strong man. And in this passage, who is the strong man? It's talking about Satan and Satan's strong man, uh, how his house and how you can spoil his house. And then he goes through three things, which is the meat of the passage. A kingdom divided itself cannot stand. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Satan rises up against himself. You see those three thoughts and that's the core of the passage. But there's a statement he says right there is Satan's kingdom is coming to an end. Satan's kingdom is coming to an end. You realize up until this point, number one, not only did Christians not have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside them, that didn't come till Pentecost. Remember you read in Samson, the Holy Spirit came upon him and then it left him. And then King Saul, the Holy Spirit came upon him and then it left him. And the same with David, the Holy Spirit was an external force that came upon people for special occasions. But it dwelt in the temple Remember the, the whole, the pillar and the cloud and that the temple was so full of God's glory the priests couldn't even go inside. And then the New Testament says that you are the temple of the living God and the Holy Spirit comes inside of you to live permanently. Doesn't come and go anymore, thank the Lord. But up until this point, the Holy Spirit was something that was external and the demonic world had a very heavy power. It still does, but not in the same way it did in the Old Testament. You see, we're now in the New Testament that believers have the Holy Spirit inside them and that Satan's kingdom is coming to an end. And that all began that process in the biggest way where Satan's head was crushed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ as prophesied in Genesis 3. So the main point Jesus is making in this passage based on that chiastic structure is that it, it's not logical for him, Jesus, to be of Satan 
and at the same time fight against Satan. You can't be of Satan and fight for Satan is what Jesus' main point is. But his second point is that he is the true strong man. He says Satan's a strong man, but I am the true strong man and that Satan's kingdom will come to an end. So Jesus' family comes and thinks he's out of his mind. They think he's a lunatic, right? The scribes come and say, well, he's a liar. You know, he's of the father of the devil, who's a liar of all, father of all lies, and that, that Jesus is satanic. And that's how he's performing all these miracles and casting out demons. And Jesus though, proclaims that he is Lord. This is what's known by C.S. Lewis as the Jesus trilemma. The Jesus trilemma. That, you, have you heard people say, well, I follow Jesus because I think he's a good man and a good teacher, but I don't think he's God. And let me tell you, that's an absurd statement that Jesus said, you don't have that option to make that choice. Let me, let me, well, let's follow what C.S. Lewis says here. And I, I don't usually read this much as I am today, but I, 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 there's a lot of good content here that I don't want to just have to try to paraphrase. C.S. Lewis, who, by the way, C.S. Lewis was an atheist who came to Christ. And what is C.S. Lewis famous for? Yeah, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, The Chronicles of Narnia. Okay, how many have seen those movies? And some people say the book is better. I'll take their word for it. I don't, I don't read the books because I don't want to ruin the movie. Anyway, but uh, here's what's really interesting is C.S. Lewis had a friend who was an atheist, J.R.R. Tolkien. What is he famous for? The Lord of the Rings. And he led him to Christ. So here's some, the reason I keep showing you all these brilliant people is because I want you to realize that what, when, you, when people, when our kids are in high school or they go off to college, they're told by smart professors that, oh, God's not real, Jesus is not real, all that's a myth. And I'm telling you, people much smarter than them are saying, no, 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 you are very wrong. Okay? C.S. Lewis says here, Jesus told people that their sins were forgiven. This makes sense only if he really was the God whose laws are broken and whose love is, is wounded in every sin. I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that, I peep, that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. He goes on to say that, that, that it is one, one of the things we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus basically gave you three choices. Anybody who says, I am God and I can forgive sin is mentally deranged if that's not true. They are a lunatic. Or they are a cult leader who is lying and manipulating people. Neither of those first two options make him a good teacher. So don't insult Christianity by saying, well, Jesus was a good teacher, but he wasn't really God. No, he, those, that's not an option. He was either a lunatic or a liar, or he truly was the Lord. It says in verse 20 that he went home. Now, Jesus was born where? In Bethlehem, right? Then his family fled to Egypt when Herod was killing all the two and unders, males. And then he came back and he grew up in Nazareth. That's why he's called Jesus in Nazareth. But when he started his ministry... He went into the synagogue in Nazareth and they asked him to read the scripture because he's a rabbi. So he stood up and read the scripture about, you know, I'm come to preach the gospel to the poor and all that about the Messiah. And he rolled up the scripture and he said, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your midst. 
And he sat down. And they're like, what? And they wanted to stone him in his own hometown. They're like, man, we know you. You're the carpenter's son. We know about Joseph and Mary supposedly having a baby born, you know, a virgin. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. You, you cannot be the Messiah. And they wanted to kill him. And it says from thenceforth, he did no more miracles in that town. So he made his home base Capernaum. Okay, and so he went home. This may be Peter's home. We don't know for sure who he stayed with, but we know he did stay for Peter, with Peter for a long time. And the crowd gathered so they could not even eat. There was so many people pressing in and so many people in that house that when, when Jesus came home and it was dinner time, they couldn't even stop to fix dinner because there were so many people. And I, I assume that means because he was attending to them, he was healing to them, he was teaching them, he was doing all those things. So you see the difference in Capernaum being open to Jesus and Nazareth being uh, closed to Jesus. And that's where you need to really be careful about your attitude because it's contagious. Whole towns can be against Jesus and whole towns can be for Jesus. Whole families can be against Jesus and whole families can be for Jesus. And your love for Jesus can spread or it can be totally shut down by your lifestyle and spread to an entire community. Um, it says, and when his family heard it, and later we know in the, the, the parallel verse, that's his mom, his brothers, and his sisters. Yes, Jesus had brothers and sisters. They were half brothers and sisters, right? Because Joseph was their father, but God was Jesus' father. And when they heard it, now I think the, it was not, oh, Jesus can't eat dinner. Let's go help him. <laughs> I don't think that was it. Nazareth was in walking distance from Capernaum, okay? So when they, they, they probably had connections and people said, hey, did you hear Jesus is back in town over in Capernaum? Oh, good. We've been meaning to talk to him. I don't think that it is because he can't eat. It's because we heard that he's home. For they were saying he's out of his mind. Isn't that crazy? Jesus' family was saying he's out of his mind. Now, one question I have, I don't know if you're thinking this, is Mary in that group? Yeah, yeah I see, I see not, people nodding. We don't know. Um, we know that Mary in her Magnificat says, he is my savior. So she recognizes that. Now, technically, in order to be a born-again Christian, you must believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Jesus has not been resurrected yet, okay? And when it happened... Did any of the disciples go saying, look, when they went to the tomb, did they expect to find it empty? No. Okay, this gets sticky here, but I believe the majority, if not all the disciples, got saved after the resurrection. Now, we can agree to disagree on that. That means, that means in the whole ministry, they seem lost. But I, I'm given the either idea. I just know it's kind of crazy. But we do know for a fact that Jesus' brothers did not believe, not based on Gary's opinion, but because the Bible says so. Well, I'll show you that verse here in just a second. But can you imagine your own family thinking you're out of your mind? Um, I can imagine that. <laughs> I remember, I, I came to Christ when I was nine years old. My, my father was an agnostic. My mom was diehard Roman Catholic, but by this point, she was only going Easter and Christmas, and that's the only exposure I had to Christianity was a Latin mass and a lot of confusion I didn't understand. And, and um, I remember when I got saved, I got saved. I mean, even though I was only nine years old, it wasn't like I was addicted to crack and, and running a, a drug ring, you know, like that. But I, I still dramatically changed. And, and just my, I fell in love with Jesus and I wanted to tell everybody about Jesus. And I was telling my mom and dad about Jesus and all that stuff. And my dad said to me, Gary, 
I'm glad you found religion, but you're taking this way too far. You're becoming a fanatic. And I can relate with Jesus that people think you've crossed the line. And let me just tell you something. I don't want anybody in this church to be known for being a jerk for Jesus, okay? There's, a lot, there's enough jerks for Jesus out there, right? I want, but I do want you to be known for being fanatical about Jesus, where some lost people will say, you know, you take that Christianity thing a little bit too far. Well, amen. Thank you. I'll take that as a compliment. Again, it, it, it should be where, you know what? I don't agree with David Garcia, but I sure do respect the way he loves his Lord. That's the kind of thing we should be, that we should be hearing from our lost friends. So why did they think this? Well, number one, this statement that he's out of his mind, in this day and time, a lot of people thought mental illness was almost always demonic. But the Bible makes it very clear that that's not the case. It says in many passages in the gospel that Jesus healed the sick and cast out demons. And, it made, and he makes a distinction between the two. That sometimes there's a mental illness that's not demonic. And there's some illnesses like leprosy and whatever that are not demonic. And there's some things that are demonic. And Jesus says they're not always overlapping. Sometimes they are. But sometimes they're not. So in they, they were living in a day where everything, every sickness, every blindness, everything was blamed on the devil. And we have people today like that. Anything that goes wrong, oh, you know, who's sin? This man or there's parents, right? We've heard that before. And so that, that statement they're saying out, is out of his mind is kind of a nice way of saying maybe the scribes are right, but at least they're putting it nicely. Um, also, we know that they're unbelievers, okay? And here, again, what, look what the scripture says. In John chapter seven, we compare it to John's gospel. It says, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee and he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him for not even his brothers believed him, okay? We know Jesus had at least a brother named James and a brother named Jude and, and several other brothers. He had sisters. And this word brothers here means siblings, it's, it's in the gender neutral. We, we know that even his siblings did not believe in him. So we know they're unbelievers, and that's why they would say that he's out of his mind. But also, a lot of people are like, Jesus, why don't you just talk plainly? Why do you keep talking in these code words? And Jesus says, I'm doing it for a reason. Because to them, it's not for them to understand the kingdom, but for you it is. And so when people are true followers of Christ, they can read Jesus' parables and understand them. But to the unbeliever, it's like, what? What are you talking about, the... The kingdom is like a lost coin and a man digs for it and what he sells all he has. What in the world is that talking about? But it's interesting that when you, when you come to Christ and you start seeing the gospel and everything, all of a sudden all the light bulbs go on and it makes sense. But to the unbeliever, Jesus is trying to put the cookies on the higher shelf. He's trying to say, hey, you want this? You want to reach for it? Want to reach for it? And so that's, the, the parables were really confusing to them. And also they thought Jesus, you know, Jesus, we, we grew up thinking you're the Messiah. That's what mom Mom told us, you're the Messiah, and you're not acting very messianic right now. I mean, the Messiah should be looking powerful and ready to get an army together to throw out the Romans, and we can stop paying these taxes. You need to be more like a politician or a warrior, but you're acting like some, some weak guy going around in flip-flops, you know, preaching about love and all this stuff. You know, what, what is that, Jesus? That's not very messianic. We think you've lost your mind. So Mark's primary audience, when he wrote this, is the followers of Jesus in Rome. And remember what's happening in Rome right now? They're burning Christians at the stake. What, what the, the Caesar, when he, at night when he wants to throw a party, he tars and feathers Christians and sets them on fire to have lamps so he can have his parties outdoor. And that's what's happening here. And, and they're being persecuted and their families think, you're out of your mind. 
And so Mark is putting this in here that, you know what, if you're a Christian in Rome and you think your family thinks you lost your mind, they thought that about Jesus before you. And, and uh, I don't want you to raise your hands, but I, I wonder how many people in this room that the more you fall in love with Jesus, the more your family's like, okay, <laughs> here it comes. Here comes the Jesus freak, you know? Again, please don't be a jerk for Jesus, but Jesus freaks, amen, I'm all for it. Um, so being a true follower of Jesus seems crazy to unbelievers. And I would dare to say that if you don't seem a little bit crazy to unbelievers, maybe you're not really sold out. You're not truly given 100% for the Lord because that's what they should be thinking if they thought of Jesus. The crowd thinks Jesus is amazing. But why? Why? Miracles, free food, I mean, all that stuff. Of course, and in fact, when we see Jesus stops the miracles and says, hey, you want a free meal? You need to eat of my blood and my flesh. And they're like, what? Cannibalism? What? We're out of here. And they all went away. Thousands of people, and he looks at the 12 and says, you guys going to go away too? And Peter said, where are we going to go? You're the only one with the words of eternal life. You know, the one time Peter, you know, a few times Peter actually says something right without putting his foot in his mouth, right? But the crowd thinks he's amazing, uh, but only, again, only because of the miracles. Um, Jesus' family thinks he's a lunatic. He's out of his mind. The scribes take it even further. They think he's a liar, or satanic, right? So you get, we got the whole liar, lunatic, or Lord thing right here that C.S. Lewis described right here in this passage. And it says, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons, not a second person, but the same person. He casts out the demons. Matthew 12 tells us what happened. Again, Mark's a short gospel. Mark wrote it in a short package for for believers in Rome to just get the basics of it. They didn't need all the Jewish detail. Matthew writes a really big gospel because he has to give the Jews all the prophecies, all the detail. He tells us what happened here. It says a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. So this guy's like a Helen Keller, for those of you who know who that is, if you don't Google it. Okay, he's not only blind and mute, he's demon-possessed. It makes this distinction between the two, okay? And he was brought to him and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. By the way, Jesus never healed anybody halfway, ultimately. There was one guy who saw trees, but that was just for an illustration. Jesus healed them all the way. That's why I'm always skeptical when these people that are faith healers, and they heal somebody, and they say, well, I'm slowly getting better. I'm like, I don't think that was Jesus. <laughs> Jesus says the, with the man, we just learned last week, the man with the withered hand, his hand was healed what? Immediately. Immediately. We saw leprosy go immediately. We didn't see these gradual healings. This guy was healed also immediately. So we, he talks about Beelzebub or Beelzebul. It's the same one. One's Hebrew, one's Greek. And it says a name derived from a Philistine god formerly worshipped in Ekron and later adopted by some Abrahamic religions as a major demon. The name Beelzebub is associated with the Canaanite god Baal. And what did you sacrifice to Baal? Your children. That's why he's seen here with a child in his arms. In fact, Usually a bale altar was a big hollow metal bale on which inside of it was, was fire. And his arms would be held out like this. And of course, they'd basically they'd be like a grill. And they would lay their child on the grill basically and burn their child alive in the name of religion. And if you, and, I can, and I, I'm like you, oh my gosh, how can you even think about that? We, in America, we're still doing it today. And it's called Abortion. And, and we, we stand strong against that. We believe that it is still demonic. 
It is still sacrificing to a, not a God named Beelzebub, but a God named convenience, a God named lifestyle. We have the majority of women getting abortions in America today are using it as birth control. It's not like, they always want to talk about the rape or incest, and we can discuss that one, okay, but that's less than one half of 1%. The majority of women, it's, it's, it's used as birth control, and it's just like, I don't want to be pregnant right now. It's not a good time. And it's very sad that this is happening. Um, so mentally ill often, people often claim to be Jesus or God. Have you noticed that? You'll, you'll have people in psychiatric wards, and they say, I'm God, I'm Jesus, you know, and there's the David Koresh's and all the different people of the world that go around, cult leaders that claim to be Jesus or God. What's fascinating about that is you, I have never heard of someone claiming to be Buddha or Muhammad. Have you? Have you ever heard of a mentally ill person claiming to be Buddha Muhammad? Have you ever heard a person use Buddha's name in vain? Oh, Buddha damn. (laughs) Do you hear that? Do you hear Muhammad? Do you hear people use? Why is that? Because Jesus truly is God and people use his name in vain and they use the Father's name in vain because it's a spiritual battle. And so... um, is that a coincidence? I don't think it is. I think that's more evidence that Jesus Christ truly is God because why do lost people use his name in vain? Because it's a spiritual battle. In a, in a psychiatric ward, there was two patients in the same room and the psychiatrist was making his rounds and he came into the room and, and he was a new psychiatrist so he wanted to meet all the patients and he comes up, he sees these two patients in their rooms there and he says, hello, my name is Dr. Matthews. He said, uh, and who are you? And he goes, I am Napoleon. He's like, wow, you're Napoleon. How, how do you know that you're Napoleon? He goes, because God told me. And the other patient goes, I did not. <laughs> right, you have to explain that one. All right. Uh, in verse 23, it says, and he called to them and he said to them in parables. Again, Jesus is speaking in parables. Have you ever heard the phrase that a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning? Never heard that one? Well, throw that one in the trash can. It's probably better you never heard that. That's not what that's about, okay? Parables were Jesus' way, again, of making people reach for it. Because if you really desire to know me, you will seek to understand the meaning of it, okay? So parables were meant to be difficult. They weren't meant to be like cute little illustrations. And, and he said, and he, this parable he uses here is, how can Satan cast out Satan? It's a great rhetorical question. It makes no sense whatsoever. Satan can't cast out Satan, number one, because he doesn't have the power to do it, but number two, why would he do it, okay? And then if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom shall not stand. Then he moves from a kingdom down to a house. If a house is divided, a family is divided against itself, that family will not be able to stand. And if Satan, now he's down to an individual, has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is coming to an end. And so that's the important thing he's trying to convey right here. You see, the principle of division is a warning to us. Number one, he gave the warning so he could say, hey, stop claiming all my miracles, all my healing of lepers and blind people is demonic. You got to stop using that bogus argument. You got to face me for who I really am. But the second thing we can get from this is a warning. We need to be warned about this whole principle of division. In America, we are more divided than ever, ever before. I remember when I was a kid, you know, there was Democrats and Republicans, but when it came down to we had to go to war or we had to get through a crisis together, you would see Democrats and Republicans come together and even pray together. Man, it doesn't matter what the issue now is 
we're against each other. If they're for it, we're against it. If they're against it, we're for it. And we are so divided between red and blue, black and white, all these other things that just Satan is just trying to rip us apart. Do you think America can keep going that way? I, I don't think it can. There's no guarantee in scripture that America will even be here. It's interesting. People always try to look for America in Bible prophecy and you can't find it. And some people speculate it's because we won't be here. I'm not trying to prophesy here, okay? I, I am, uh, I am uh, not a son of a prophet, so I work for a nonprofit ministry. I don't, I don't know any of that stuff. I'm not claiming that, okay? But this is a warning to America that a house divided against itself cannot stand. Be Benjamin Franklin pretty much so said so much. He said, we will either ha all hang together or we will hang separately. And that being united is important. It's a warning to our, our church that I thank the Lord we have been nothing but harmonious for eight years. You know, from our beginning. I, are we a perfect church? No. We've had no divisions. We have no problems. We, I mean, we have problems. I'm saying we've no, had no major problems that would rip us apart. You know what, though? Do not ever, ever take that for granted. That is a gift from God, and we need to be thankful for it, and we need to contend for it. We need to fight for it. And when we go through this merger, and there's going to be approximately you know, 12 to 15 people becoming part of us, we need to love on them and care for them. And what is unity? It's not agreeing on everything. It's loving each other in spite of disagreements. So those are going to happen. When you first got married, was everything perfect? You know, a few months after the honeymoon, everything like, oh, now the, the gloves come off. Now I see how it is, okay, right? And so, but you know what? You loved each other. You kept going. You worked together. You, you didn't agree on everything. Well, my mom does it this way. Well, my mom does it this way. Well, your mom is wrong. You know, and you just, you have those things, right? But guess what? Because you love each other, you continue to work through it. So as we prepare for this merger, we need to realize that if we're a house divided, it cannot stand. And one of the things I, I really have learned to love about Pastor Stan Byers um, the pastor of the other church, is he and I are clicking. I mean, we're not like best buds or anything like that. I mean, we may become best friends, but, but we're, we have said to one another, hey, two, the two of us need to stand together. We need to stand together and don't let people start talking about, well, we don't do it that way. Or we, we didn't used to do it that way at the old building. and We didn't do it this way. We're not going to allow that kind of stuff. We just need to be on one page and be stand together. And let me tell you, this goes for your family. Moms and dads, don't let your kids play the end against the middle. You, man, I, I know of a family years ago where the dad was very strict and he was probably too strict. I'll, I'll give him that. But the mom would always say to the daughters, well, don't tell your dad. Just don't tell your dad. We'll do this, but don't tell your dad. And they constantly did that. And I know one of those daughters for sure grew up just lying all the time because she got so used to lying to her dad that now it became a lifestyle. And you need to be really careful about dividing. Mom and dad whether you agree or not, you need to have a united front to your kids that you stand the same way on, on, on issues and you discipline the same way. It says, but no one can enter a strong man's house. Who's the strong man? Satan. Satan. And plunders goods unless he first binds the strong man. Now there's people who are always talking about, why do you, I bind Satan? I bind Satan, all that stuff. Who's binding Satan in this story? Jesus says He's the one that binds the strong man, okay? And then indeed he may plunder his house. Now, what's interesting is there's no commentary on this in other Gospels about what, what are we plundering in the house? What, what are we talking about? It, it kind of leaves us to some sanctified speculation. What do you think that we would be plundering in Satan's house? Souls. Satan in his house. Because what is the word house a representation of? A family. 
You know, because what did they say? I am of the house and lineage of David. It was a family term. And what did Jesus say to the Pharisees? You're of your, fa- you're of your father, the devil. You're children of the devil. So in Satan's house is his family, and that's lost people. Now, before you start feeling all high and mighty and righteous, like I'm in God's house, look at those evil people in Satan's house, you were there before too. And except for the grace of God, that's where you would still be, okay? And the good news is Satan has bound the strong man, and guess what we get to do? We get to go in and say, hey, get out of Satan's house. Come find Jesus. Come follow Jesus. And that's what we're supposed to be doing for the kingdom of God. Listen to what John 4, 4 says. Little children, if you, it says, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you, who's in you? Jesus is greater than he who's in the world. Who's in the world? Yeah. Jesus is greater than Satan. Okay. You see these stickers on cars and on skateboards, a yin and yang, you know, the black and white circle with the little white dot on the black side and the black dot on the white side. And that comes from, Uh, Hinduism and Buddhism, they share this concept that the world is equally good and equally bad. And that there are just two forces in the universe, a force for good and a force for bad. And on the good side, there's a little bit of evil. And on the evil side, there's a little bit of good. And those two forces are equal. It's like Star Wars, you know, the dark side and the light side. And they're very evil going back and forth. Not true at all. Okay? Satan is a little tiny speck of sand in the universe, and God is the rest of the universe, okay? And God can crush Satan at any time, okay? He is just using Satan as a test tool to see who loves him and who doesn't. But don't think for a moment that Satan is equal to Jesus, and there's this fight for your soul going on, and that you're the one stuck in the middle. That's not true at all. And with that knowledge of Jesus being greater, we need to realize this. Jesus said, hey, who do men say that I am? And they had all the answers. Some people think you're Elijah the prophet. Some people think you're the Messiah. Some people think you're this and that. And he says, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter's two for two this morning. And he says, and on this rock, not Peter, but on the statement you just made, Peter, on that, my kingdom is established on the fact that I am the Christ, the son of the living God. I will build my church. And look at this, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What do gates do? They lock people in or out. And what do we do? We attack the gates. We knock them down. The strong man is bound because Satan is bound. And we go in and we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and bring lost people out and transfer them from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of Jesus' marvelous light. That's what our business, that's what Revolution Church has to always be about. Spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ so that lost people can come to the knowledge of Jesus like we have. We are like beggars who have found bread, telling other beggars where to find bread. Okay, we need to always see it that way. And if our church ever loses its purpose, then we might as well just shut the doors. And that's actually one of the things I'm a little nervous about. We've, for eight years, we've not had our own building. We've moved three times, okay? And, and yet the Lord keeps blessing and this has been, this right here has been a constant reminder that the church is not a building, amen? The church is the body of Christ and the body of Christ is the light to a lost and dying world. But one of the things I'm nervous about is if we get a nice building and we make it look great and we do all kinds of things there that we will become building-centric rather than gospel-centered, okay? And if that happens, I think we'll sell the building and we'll go move to a park somewhere and start preaching the gospel out there. But we, hopefully we can keep that all in perspective, 
So now we move to one of the most controversial things in the Bible, the unpardonable sin. How many of you have heard of the unpardonable sin before? Or the unforgivable sin or the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? They're all three the same thing. And you know what's really interesting is some people will get so obsessed with this and, and they will come where they feel hopeless over it. They will feel like an Asher's fan feels right now. They will feel totally hopeless like there's no chance whatsoever. Sorry to jab you there, okay? Jimmy's representing this morning. Good job. Um, so let's talk about the impartable sin. And let, let me just tell you, this is way more easy to understand than most people make it. Most people will take this and try to abuse the scripture to make it something that it's not. Let me say number one, it is not suicide. Nothing in the Bible says anything about the impartable sin being suicide. People who are doing that are just grasping. And there's, there's denominations who teach that. And let me tell you something. I, probably everyone in this room knows someone who's committed suicide. If they knew Jesus Christ, they are not in hell. Did they, did they sin by committing suicide? Yes. They committed murder. They murdered themselves. Is that an impartable sin? No. Jesus died for how many sins, people? All of them, including suicide. I am not recommending suicide. Suicide is a horrible solution to a very temporary problem. You hear me, young people? I don't care if your girlfriend breaks up with you and everybody makes fun of you, or if you get cyber bullied or whatever, suicide is not the answer. High school is a stupid little four-year time and all these people there don't mean anything. Really, seriously. I mean, all the adults in the room can say amen. That when you get out of high school, it's like, who were those losers? Why did I even care what they thought? Why did I even allow myself to get bullied by them? And your best friends you know, are going to be outside that group. But anyway, so verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven. How many sins? All sins will be forgiven, the, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. So it even says you can even blaspheme and be forgiven. But watch this. This is a very specific sin. If blasphemies can be forgiven, then this is a very specific type of sin that's separate from that type of blasphemy. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of, an etern of eternal sin. And that's where most people stop. But Jesus says in verse 30, for, which also means because, they were saying, he, Jesus, has an unclean spirit. He just told you what the impartable sin is. He, he performs a miracle. The scribes say, oh, that miracle's of the devil. And Jesus says, there it is. That's an impartable sin, right there. He just said, it's an eternal sin. And why is it an eternal sin? Because they were saying, they, the scribes, were saying Jesus has, has an unclean spirit. Now watch this further. John copies the same information here and elaborates on it in verse 5, chapter 15. And, and Jesus says this, If I had not done among them, did you notice the requirement here? If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. Do you see that right there? They're guilty of the impartable sin because I did a miracle right in front of their eyes and they said it was of the devil. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. Do you see all the requirements there? You have to see it. You have to hate it. You have to attribute it to the devil. So he says, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. So here's what's happening in that verse. Jesus does a miracle. The Holy Spirit uses that miracle as a witness, as a testimony that Jesus is the Messiah. Those who saw it in person, he said, I had to do it among them or they wouldn't be guilty. Right? Isn't that what he just said? If I hadn't done it among them, because I was right there in the midst and they saw it with their own eyes and they said, oh, that's of the devil. You just knocked out the testimony of the Holy Spirit that, that allows you to get saved. 
So how can he get saved if you knock out the very the Holy Spirit that is testifying of the miracle of Jesus? So what is the unpardonable sin? It is seeing in person among, with being in the midst of Jesus, a miracle he did and attributing to the devil. Can anybody in this room commit that sin? He even said in the previous verse, all blasphemies can be forgiven. So what is this? This is a specific eyewitness account, blaspheming the Holy Spirit in person when Jesus is there in the midst. That's what it is. So no one can commit the unpardonable sin today. Okay? And yet there are all kinds of people, and I see people especially who are dealing with mental illnesses that get obsessed with this. I think I've committed the unpardonable sin. I think I've committed the unpardonable sin. You haven't. He says, so here, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit or the unpardonable sin is to see in person a miracle of Jesus and at the same time attribute to the work of Satan rather than the work of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus said in verse 15, 24, he says, if I had not done it among them, they would not be guilty of this sin. So if you didn't, if you don't commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit while Jesus is in your midst, you, can, you still can be forgiven. So the unpardonable sin is not rejecting Jesus. It's, I mean, and some people say that too. Oh, well, now the unpardonable sin is rejecting Jesus. Let me ask you a question. How many of you accepted Christ the very first time you heard the gospel? Very few. In fact, they say on average people hear the gospel seven times before they get saved. Well, wait a minute. Does that mean the previous six are unpardonable? They rejected Christ here. They rejected Christ here. They rejected Christ here. How can, they, how can rejecting Christ be the unpardonable sin when most people reject him multiple times before they actually get saved? So it can't be that either. Again, it's, it's neither of those. The fact that you are concerned, if you are, about committing the unpardonable sin is a good indicator that you haven't. If you've committed the unpardonable sin, the Holy Spirit is no longer working on you anymore. And therefore, you wouldn't even be thinking about it. So if you're, if you're at home right now watching online and you think I've, I've committed the unpardonable sin, you haven't. You haven't for, based on these two reasons alone right there, based on Scripture. Verse 31 says, And his mother and his brothers came, previously referred to as his family. Now it tells you specifically, and then, of course, in, in Matthew's gospel, it says brothers and sisters. Mark uses the word for siblings. And standing outside, they sent, and they called to him. So they're like, hey, Jesus, we need to talk to you. And it says that they wanted to seize him in the previous verse. Like, and that word is used like when, when Jesus was seized in the garden. It means that like, they wanted to physically pick him up and carry him away. Okay, I don't know what that would have meant, but you know how you've had to do an intervention for somebody maybe. That's what they want to do. And they're standing outside and they're saying, hey, and it's so crowded and nobody can get to him. So they're like, hey, can you tell Jesus we need to talk to him? And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, hey, your mother and your brother are outside. They're looking for you, Jesus. And Jesus is not being disrespectful. He's using it as, as an object lesson here. And he says, and he answered him and said, who are my mother and my brothers? It's a great question. We're like, well, Jesus, isn't that Mary and James and Jude outside? He says, no. And he looks around everybody at the table with him, which is probably the 12 and, and Mary Magdalene and other ladies and men who were his closest followers. He said, here's my mother and my brothers. I would have loved to have been there. I, in fact, I wonder if the chosen is going to do this scene. Wouldn't that be awesome? So they, they, he makes that great statement. And he says, here's why. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Have you ever heard the phrase, blood is thicker than water? We use it today to refer to our blood relatives are closer than water, which is a reference to friends. But that's not where the phrase first started. It first started in the Middle Ages when Christians were being persecuted and their own families were turning them in and said, hey, I found that he has a Bible, arrest him or whatever. And they said that the blood of Jesus Christ that makes us brothers and sisters 
is thicker than the water of the womb that makes us biological brothers and sisters. The water referring to the water of the womb. You know, we're carried around in a sack of water. When, when the baby's coming, what, ha what breaks? Water. Our bodies are 87% water. It's talking about this. And that's what Jesus said in John chapter 3. Born of water and born of the spirit. Physical birth, spiritual birth, right? And Jesus is saying, you really want to be my family? Right now, if you're a believer in me, and, you, and as evidence of your belief in me, you're doing the will of God, you're more my brother and sister in Christ than these people outside asking for me who think I'm mentally ill. Okay? I, I have family members, relatives, who don't know Jesus Christ. And I can tell you Chris Sharp is more my brother in Christ than they are. Even though we have a blood relationship there, he and I have a thicker blood, and that's the blood of Jesus Christ. And that is what Jesus is referring to. Now, doing the will of God is not how you become a child of God, but proof that you are a child of God. So don't read that verse backwards and say, oh, if you do the will of God, you get to be a brother and sister of Jesus Christ. No, no. He's saying the very proof that you are a child of God and you're related to Jesus Christ is that you're doing the will of God, showing that you truly are a brother or a sister in Christ. In fact, here's what Jesus says in John 6. Then they said to him, what must we do to do the works of God? They were religious people saying, oh, you got to do something. Every religion in the world Buddhism, Shintoism, Islam, most Christian religions say you do this, you become a Christian. You do this, and you become a child of God. You do this, and you can do the works of God. Religion is what do we do? What do we do? Christianity is focused on what Christ has done. What Christ has done. Jesus' answer said, this is the work of God. That you don't do anything. You simply believe in him who he sent. You don't do, you believe. You don't work, you trust. And there's a big difference. That's what true Christianity teaches. In Ephesians 2, it says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, not able to do anything. Can dead people do anything? No. We were, we were dead. We were made alive in Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And would you read this verse with me? And raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So then the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And watch this here. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. You know, people say, oh, there's so many different types of Christianity because there's so many different interpretations of the Bible. Most Christian religions, and again, I'm not saying we're the only Bible-believing church. There's, thank the Lord, there's dozens of great Bible-believing churches in Pearland and around the city, okay? But there are, the majority of so-called Christian religions say, you be a good person, you go to heaven. Have we not, how many of you have been in those kind of churches or grew up around that? Yeah. And yet, and they say, well, that's because you interpret the Bible differently. How in the world do you interpret this any other way? It's through faith. It has nothing to do with what you do. It's a gift. It's not a result of works. Which Bible are you reading? I don't care. You could probably even get that right in the message and still it would make sense, okay? You could do it. I don't care if it's King James, ESV, CEV. They're all saying the same thing. People who are teaching works for salvation are ignoring parts of the Bible. It's not a matter of misinterpreting or having your own private interpretation. My question to you this morning is, have you received the gift of salvation? It's a gift. 
Okay? Jose's back here. A buddy of mine just got baptized earlier this year. If, if, if uh, Jose, if I, if I wanted to give Jose my iPhone here, and I said, hey, hey, Jose, here we go. I want you to have my phone. And Jose reaches in his pocket and he pulls out 60 bucks. Is that a gift? No, that's a purchase. If I, if I said, Jose, hey, thank you for mowing my lawn. I don't have any cash, but here's an iPhone. Is that a gift? No, that's payment. If I said, hey, Jose, I want you to have my phone, but you better be in church every single Sunday or I'm taking this phone back. Is that a gift? No, it's an obligation. A gift means here. What does Jose have to do to make this gift his own? Just simply receive it. I'm offering it. He received it. He has to do nothing. That's what salvation is. Over and over again, the Bible calls salvation a gift. Have you received the gift of salvation? I'd love for everybody right now, if you would, if you don't mind, just bow your heads and pray with me. Okay? If you know for sure you're saved and you received the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, you've given your life to him, you've received his life for you, then I want you to pray for those who don't. Those who are watching online this morning, those who may be in-house, there may be here today people who've grown up in church and they think they're saved, but they've never really made that decision in their heart. They just kind of went through the motions. If that's you this morning, if you've never been saved, you can do that right here, right now. Prayer does not save you, but you, I want you to communicate with your heart and by faith receive Christ. And you could pray something like this. Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I deserve your punishment. I thank you that you took my place on the cross and you died for me and for everything I've ever done. So Lord, because you gave your life for me, I'm gonna give my life to you, make you the Lord of my life and believe on you as my Lord and my Savior. And I thank you for forgiving all my sins. In your name I pray, amen. If you made that decision, I, I would encourage you to contact me. Um, if you'll go to the next slide for me, I messed this up. And my cell phone number is right here, and you can contact me. We'll talk about what your next steps are as a new believer in Christ, and, uh, and we would love to talk to you about baptism, which would be your first step. So um, right now we're going to move into a question and answer session. So Amanda, would you want to come up and use one of these mics here? This mic here? That work? <clears throat> All right, and if you have a question, there's my number right there. You can text it anytime. There you go. And um, again, uh, if you have questions about the merger, now's the time to do it. You can raise your hand. You don't have to text if you don't want to. All right, go ahead, Amanda. We'll go through these. Does the Catholic Church believe Peter was the first pope because of Matthew 16, 16? Why else would they think this? Yes, I, um, I grew up Irish Catholic. And yes, they will claim that Peter was the first pope. And I, I don't want to bash Catholics this morning. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not doing There are Catholics who do know Christ as their Savior. But I will say this, they are saved not because of their church, but in spite of their church. The Catholic Church clearly teaches works for salvation. They believe that you're, they would say you're saved by grace through faith, but the grace of God is dispensed through seven sacraments. Okay, uh, Catholic christening or baptism, um, confirmation, confession, holy communion, um, uh, Catholic marriage, um, I'm missing one. And then last rites, and there's one I'm missing in there. Forgive me. Anyway, but they believe the grace of God is dispensed through those seven sacraments. As long as you partake of those seven sacraments, then you can be saved. Okay? And so, but I'm, I'm digressing from the main question. Yes, they would base that, base that. But here's what the thing is. P Jesus said, you are Peter. 
okay? Petros, which means pebble or a little rock like you can throw in your hand. And he said, upon this rock, boulder or foundation stone, I'll build my church. He wasn't referring to Peter. He said, you're Peter, a little rock in my hand. But upon what you just said, this massive stone of, of rock of offense, the cornerstone, I'm going to build my church. Isn't that what Jesus said? Upon the, he's the chief cornerstone, that he is the Christ, Son of God. He said, so it's clearly based upon the statement, not upon Peter. But yes, Catholics will say that Jesus just made Peter the first pope, which also we know that Peter was married, and popes aren't usually married, but Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. So... Caleb wants, Caleb Holton, wants to know if God likes anything about Halloween. Wow. Um, <laughs> next question. No, just kidding. Um, okay, so this is, this is a preference amongst Christians. I'm not going to point to a Bible verse and say, thou shall not partake in Halloween. Okay? The, I do know this. 1 Corinthians 10.31 needs to be your guiding principle. Whether you eat or drink or trick or treat, do all to the glory of God. Okay? Do all to the glory of God. If you can do it to the glory of God, more power to you. Okay? If you want to hand out gospel tracts with a giant Snickers bar, don't hand out cheap candy and a gospel track. Okay? That's being a jerk for Jesus. Hand out the best candy in the world, and here's how you get saved. Okay? And do it. Okay? I, I do, pers my personal preference, everybody says preference. I, I stay away from the blood, the guts, the ghosts, and the goblins. I don't like that. My kids dress up, but they dress up as something positive, okay? Um, and so I think that's part of being in the world, but not of it. You, if you may choose to totally abstain and say, I want nothing to do with the holiday, and you just guys go out for dinner and turn your, your lamp off in your house, and that's great if you do it to the glory of God. That's why Paul says, hey, one man worships on one day, one worships on another. Don't divide over these things, okay? So I, that's why our church doesn't do some major stance on it because I don't think it's that clear-cut in Scripture. I'm going to fight bigger battles than that one, okay? If you die without being baptized but have lived a life with God and have done his will, do you still go to heaven? You guys answer that question. Absolutely. It, it, baptism is a work. We're not saved by works. Baptism is a good work that you do to show the world you've been saved. Classic example, the thief on the cross, did he get baptized? But Jesus said, hey, today you'll be with me in paradise. Okay, this guy lived a horrible life his whole life, but in the, literally in the 11th hour, he gets saved and goes to heaven. Now, there's some people who go, oh man, how is that even fair? That's why Jesus gave that parable and said, hey, a man had a, a field that he needed to harvest. He went out at sunrise and hired a group of day laborers and said, I'll pay you one day's wage. Then he went out at 9 a.m., hired another group, said, I'll pay you one day's wage. Noon, 3 o'clock, and then at sunset, he gave another, he said, hey, come work for me for one hour. I'll give you a whole day's wage. Do you see that? He's talking about the thief on the cross. And then when he, he's when he paid the guys last a whole day's wage, the guys are like, man, we were here at sunrise. If they got a whole day's wage, we're going to get like triple, quadruple, something. But he paid them all the same. Like, hey, what gives, Jesus? How did you pay them more than us? We worked all day. He said, hey, didn't we have a deal? Did you not sign up for one day's wage? So if you got saved at nine or 69, you're saved by grace. You're a sinner who deserves hell. So whether it's the 11th hour or when you're a little bitty kid, you know, we all deserve hell. So don't start comparing this little infinite life. Um, no. <laughs> okay, yeah, okay. So I said no sarcastically, cause, but okay. So this is interesting. So, 
I'm trying to figure out how to best say this concisely. At the marriage supper of the Lamb, there are, there are those who are seated at the table, and then there's guests, but they're all in heaven. And some people, and I can't say for sure on this, okay? I'm just telling you what some people, some people think those who have been baptized and part of the, the, the body of Christ, the church, because that's how you enter the, you're baptized into his body, right? Romans 4, um, that those are the ones seated at the table. Those who got saved but never followed the Lord in scriptural baptism are the guests at the marriage, but they're all in heaven. So I'm not going to divide over that. I'm not going to say you're a heretic if you don't believe one way or another. I really don't know what I think about that. I've just heard that theory that who, who are the guests? And some people speculate it's say, that saved but not baptized. Um, so Paul talks about being called up in the third heaven. But all that's talking about is this. The Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God. That's talking about the stars, okay? And then the, so the first heaven is the earth's atmosphere. Beyond the earth's atmosphere, basically the, um, the galaxy is the second heaven. And then the third heaven is where God reigns, and that's in another dimension. That's where Paul was called up to. So, he didn't just, so when it says somebody went, when Jesus was up in the heavens, he went up in the clouds. And then the heavens declare, or the stars, that's the second heaven. And then where the God is in his presence is the third heaven. But those, that's not the eternal state that we call heaven, the kingdom of God. There's only one heaven in that sense, and we're all there. There are levels of reward. You know, okay, wood, hay, and stubble, gold, silver, and precious stones. So there's, there's six, sorry, six, six different types of reward in heaven. But again, we're all... We all, no matter whether you get a million crowns or no crowns, we're all casting them at Jesus' feet. So it's, it all doesn't matter anyway. I mean, it matters, but you know what I mean. <laughs> okay. As a general principle, how do, we know in the Bi- how do we know what in the Bible applies today and what only applies to a specific situation in the Bible, e.g. the unpardonable sin? Great. And like I've said a million times, but I want to repeat it so you'll hear it for this person and everybody else. Bible interpretation is just like selling houses. It's all about location, location, location. Where is that verse found? What are the verses around it? What chapter? What book of the Bible? Who wrote it? Who did he write it to? Is it Old Testament, New Testament? Location tells you everything. And Jesus there explained it. So Jesus was telling us, had I not done this in their midst, they, they wouldn't be guilty. He just told you, you have to be in the midst to be guilty of the impartable sin. So the context is what tells you. Every misinterpretation of the Bible that starts another denomination, another denomination, is someone taking a verse out of context, they have a hobby horse or an agenda, and they take this verse and run with it, and they leave the rest of the context behind. I guarantee you, almost every verse in the Bible, if you'll just read around it, it'll explain itself. And then read around it in the chapter, read around it in the book, put it in context. Who was saying this? If I told you, hey, everybody go home and get, um, you know, uh, 40 trees made out of gopher wood and cut them in pieces and build a big boat. Well, I'd say it's in the Bible. Well, hello. It was for one man at one particular time to build an ark because a storm was coming. Okay. So if I pull it out of that context, then we can do pretty much anything. Uh, I will say one more thing about that. Old Testament stuff, particularly about the law, we just finished the book of Deuteronomy, right? If it's the moral law, it still applies. If it's a ceremonial law, Jesus fulfilled it. So if, it, if Deuteronomy says thou shalt not steal, that's still moral law. If it says sacrifice a scapegoat and let it, let it off into the woods, that's, that's ceremonial. So we know, and Jesus fulfilled all the ceremonial law, so he is our Sabbath, he is our sacrifice, he is our Passover, so we don't have to do anything anymore because he is all of them. 
Good question. And what would you say is the best way for a young person to understand the Bible if they're having difficulty understanding the Bible while they're reading it? Okay. I, um, I, I, I was horrible at math in school. Um, I, was, I was one of those stupid students that if I liked the teacher, I did good in the class. If I didn't like the teacher, I did bad in the class. So most of my math teachers were jerks, except for I had one teacher in eighth grade who was awesome, and all the math I know, I give thanks to him. Okay, the rest of them, I didn't like, and again, I'm not telling you to, to do that. So I know nothing about calculus or trigonometry or any of those things that Patrick knows, okay, and that Matt Stoddard knows, and all those engineers are so smart and geeks and all that stuff. I don't, I can't understand any of that. Is it still true? Yes. So in the Bible, there's addition, subtraction, multiplication, division, trigonometry, and calculus, and I could add a whole list. Understand what you can. And here's the great thing. The gospel is simple math that even a first grader can understand it. This, the other stuff about predestination and election, that's trigonometry and that's hard to understand, don't worry about it. To be saved, it's basic math, okay? And anybody can learn it. And then you just grow and understand what you can and just keep working on the rest. But the Bible has all of it. Has stuff for kids, has stuff for the most intelligent PhD, it's got stuff for the lost, it's got stuff for the saved, it's got everything. That's why the Bible, Includes all these different genres, all these different books. I mean, look at all the books by cults. It's one thing. It's one topic written by one person in 66 chapters or whatever. Here we've got poetry. We've got Ruth. We've got Esther. We've got Mark. We've got all this different stuff. We've got Genesis. It's so great that just start somewhere and read and let the Holy Spirit speak to you. Any other questions? Yes. What advice can I give my friend that is dating a girl that does not want to get married? but he is considering settling down based on a sermon he heard a few weeks ago. And I assume settling down means marriage? I, yes, because what advice can I give a friend who is dating a girl? Yeah, is dating a girl that does not want to get married, so the assumption is the man does want to get married. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll refrain from any sarcastic jokes, okay? <laughs> so um, um, there's, there's three things that brings the divorce rate down to less than 10%. Some people say as, less, as low as one, okay? But do not get married before age 22. Do not make a baby together and don't live together. This is not a religious statistic. This is, this is secular statistics that say if you avoid those three things, the divorce rate goes less than 9%, okay? So uh, if she's not ready, obviously you don't want to settle down. They're not going to marry It's not going to be a shotgun wedding, I guess. I'm... I'm I'm wondering, if that person wants to text in, define what you mean by selling now. If you mean live together, first of all, based on the Bible, I can tell you that's wrong. But number two, just based on the statistics, if you don't want to have a divorce, don't live together. Okay? And there's a whole, I could talk about that for an hour, but I won't. I know Halloween is serious and all, but are you going to pray for the Astros? I pray for the Astros. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, don't, I don't pray for sports teams. I watch sports. I love sports. I love the Astros. But I, um, I'm going to pray that whatever glorifies God the most, that that's what happens. Because seriously, think about that. Let's suppose that there is one of the Houston Astros, and he's not a Christian, but he's struggling. If he wins the World Series, then who needs Jesus? But if he loses... And let's, I'm, I'm just hypothetically, uh, is that a verb? Can I say that? I'm hypotheticing. Um, I, I'm just going hypothetical here, okay? Let's say that he 
makes the error that loses the World Series. I mean, he, he, he makes an error. He misses the ball. And he's crushed, and everybody's booing him, and he doesn't even want to show his face in public. He might become so desperate that he turns to Jesus and gets saved. Man, I take the Astros losing the World Series all day long, every year, if someone got saved. Seriously. You know, so it's whatever team has the more lost people needs to lose. The, no, just get something like that. Uh, I know, I don't, I don't, I, I, I do, I think, well, like, I coach, I coach a, um, a boys basketball team, and we do not pray that God would give us a win. We pray that we would glorify God in the way we play. That, that, that's, that's what the bottom line is. That person just sent lightning emojis. What is the plan for parking at the new church as we grow? That's a great idea. In fact, we just talked about that. So what, the best plan we have right now is, um, if you want to show the picture of the building, you can, but I'll just talk about it. So on Brookside Drive, what we're going to talk about doing is extending the sidewalk all the way down to the intersection. And then the sidewalk would also be a, an asset to the, see the sidewalk there? Okay, if you take that to the right, it stops. We're talking about continuing it all the way down to the intersection, which will, the community will appreciate added sidewalk that we'll pay for. We won't ask the city of Brookside to pay, pay for it. But that will also serve as a buttress for gravel. And we will gravel it up to the sidewalk and it'll be a retention. That's the word I'm looking for. It'll be a retention for the gravel and that'll triple our parking that way. Because right now we do have limited parking. There's about 44 parking spaces. Currently, right now, out here, we have about 38, and we use most of them, okay? So right now, if, 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 our, if our highest attendance showed up on the 14th, which I expected it will, and their highest attendance shows up, if we arrange it right, we'll have plenty of parking that day, but not much more. But that's a great question. Um, in fact, see that sign there that has the, the old-fashioned sign there on the right? From there to the next light pole, there's eight parking spaces, Four of them are going to be parking for first-time guests, or guests, period, sorry, not first-time. And the other four will be parking for families of preschoolers, just like we have out here. So we'll have those eight in a row, just like that, closest to the door. And I'm going to encourage everybody else to park on Fairlane Drive on the other side. Like, see where the flag is? If you go down that street down there, I'm going to encourage you all to park that way so that the, so that the Bethel people, which we'll, we'll, not, we'll stop calling them that, will park on this side, and then guests and, and, and preschoolers will park on, on Brookside Drive, okay? Is there any parking at the elementary school on the, on the streets? There is, but it's, it's a ways away. And, and actually, I don't know. I haven't seen a gate on that property. You know how some schools are gated so that they're closed, you can't park there on the weekends? And I would want to cover that with the school before I did that. All right. I think that was everything. No more questions. All right, cool. Any other questions about the merger? Hopefully I've made everything clear. The couple people who've had concerns, it was just a misunderstanding. The, the, the facts weren't, were way off. So um, anyway, everything is going to, I think it's going to be good. We're being extremely cautious. Charles? So tomorrow with the combined board meeting, what's the objective there? To talk about the details of, so legally, Revolution Church Incorporated will cease to exist. Bethel Church will cease to exist, and we will create a new nonprofit entity, which will probably, be, the legal name will be Revolution Church of Brookside, okay? But, it'll, but that's, that's one of the things we're going to discuss, but we're going to talk about the bylaws is what we're going to discuss and, and what our government will look like, and we're still going to be elder-led. That's already been established and agreed upon, so now we're just working on what does that look like, what do other committees look like, um, yeah.
That's what that. I've seen a church uh, in Galveston that had two different names. Interesting. Yeah, he had two different. Uh, uh, one was at ten o'clock. The other one was at two. Oh, you know what that is? I'm I'm ninety percent sure that's two different churches sharing a building. Yes, we're not going to be that. We are not two churches sharing a building. We will become one church. This is a true merger. We'll be members of the same body. We're not offering two services, you know, whatever. We're not going to become the first church of the bipolar. No, not, not that. We're going to be one body in Christ, okay? So I've seen other churches that do that. In fact, um, there was a church here in Pearland that Methodists met at 830 and the Baptists met at 10 o'clock and they shared a building. That's not happening. Approximately. So um, on the 14th. Yeah, so come early on the 14th. Get to meet some people and sit amongst them. Spread out. You know, don't take their seat. No, just kidding. You might, I don't know how it works. But, uh, <laughs> some, um, but yeah, just mingle. Get to know each other. Please get there early that day. Uh, these are good questions. Ashley. That's a great question. So let me answer this on several levels without making it too long of an answer. They, they have said, please, when you come in church, do it the way you normally do. Don't change it for us. Which their music is already contemporary. Their Bible translation is already modern, but accurate. Um, so they don't have a lot of the, old, the baggage that some older congregations have that, that kill church mergers. Um, so the, the format question and answer won't change. We read scripture a lot. Uh, we sing so many songs. It, no, none of that should change. Um, we will, sooner than we thought, it reintroduce the 9 o'clock Bible class. Okay? Because we'll have tons of classrooms over there. And we're going to need people to step up to be, to, be, to be Sunday school teachers and all that stuff. And have more adult classes. We used to have eight different classes when we were at Bounce Down. In fact, we had to borrow the dance studio behind us, some of their space, to teach, for Patrick to teach his class because we ran out of classes. So we want to get back there to where we're doing that kind of stuff. Um, it just, COVID stopped all that. And we want to get back to that. that. Great question. Any other good questions? Yes. Yes, um, and this is not meant to be cliche, but pray, 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 pray. And I, I'm serious about that. I, I challenge you to set an alarm at 11.14 every day between now and November 14th to, to remind you to pray, okay? Jesus said to Peter, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat, like just to grind you into, you know, gold metal flour, okay? He said, but I have prayed for you. The difference between Peter falling through the cracks and being like Judas Iscariot to being the leader of the church of Jerusalem was because Jesus prayed for him. So the difference between this being a total bomb and like, man, let's go back to the dance studio and, this is the, and then this is the greatest thing that ever happened will be prayer. So I can't say that enough. But if you don't have a truck, that's fine. Come, stack chairs and help roll them out and put them in the truck. And then so right here, um, Thursday at 6.30, we'll be, we'll be, we'll be here. Move around. Some trucks will go to storage some will come here, and some will go to Bethel. But they, they know where they're going. But if you want to help, just text me, and I'll tell you where to go. If you, don't, if, you don't, if you just want to come here, 
We'll then roll up carpet. Everything you see, everything we do every Sunday is going to have to be rolled up and put in a truck. Um, the carpet probably would go to storage because we're not, we're not going to take it there, I don't think, unless you know of a need that I don't know. Okay? Um, then come back on Saturday, if you can, for prayer, set up in band rehearsal because we're going to set it all up there. Um, but help with any of these things on, on the 28th. We'll need people. You know how we just did our anniversary in here? We're going to do the exact same thing with servers, drink station, dessert station, all those things. You guys did a phenomenal job with that. We'll just repeat that. Good question. We're not coming back to this building after the 14th, Lord willing. We're going to go there and stay there. You know, so anyway. All right. These are good. Yeah, Lauren said to Bob, we want to, he wants to resume your Bible study class. So maybe he can finish the book of Leviticus, right? <laughs> and a prayer group. Yeah. All right. Cool. All right, good. Any others? All right. Well, let's stand.